0: Uh, welcome to Global Mission Health Conference 2019, to this breakout session where our topic is called Exploding the Myths of Missions. Uh, my name is Bob Hay, and my wife's name is Amy. She's not here with me, but I always put, bring her with me everywhere I go. Uh, at least if not in real life, we've got the picture. But it puts me into a context. I have one wife, and that's a good thing. And I have two sons. Um, both of them are, are men. They're adults. They're out on their own. One's in Germany right now, and the other one lives in North Carolina, a couple hours away from us. Um, I and my wife, we have served with SIMs uh, since 2003, so about 16 years. Um, and before that, we were 15 years with another agency, and I serve, we served in the country of Japan, where we were involved in church planting. We raised our sons in Japan. And we, um, yeah, we raised our sons in Japan. We learned the language. We learned the culture. Uh, the church that we planted was a Japanese church. It was not an international church. So it was quite a challenge and all those different things. Um, But we had those experiences of living in a new culture, living in a new place, living in um, spiritual oppression and darkness. Lots of challenges that came along with it. We absolutely loved living in Japan. But in 2003, the Lord redirected our steps and um, let us know while we were on a home assignment that He had a new plan for us for this next season of life. So, we walked through a period of time during the course of that year. It was was almost the whole year. Walked through a course of action to rethink God's call on our lives. Well, we thought God had called us to go to Japan. We thought that God had called us to go serve in Japan. We thought we would be there until we died, we retired, or Jesus came back. Whichever one happened first. (laughs) So, we had no idea that the Lord had us there for ten and a half years. So, we went with the plan to be there thirty plus years. Now, in one sense, I should have known that the Lord is going to change things on us as we're going through because He does that. He likes to keep us walking by faith and not by sight. But as we went through that process of trying to rethink those things, we had to think back through each of the steps that the Lord used to lead us to Japan. And when we reversed those steps, we got to a point where we realized, okay, this is what our calling is. This is what the core is. And from this point, the changes can come. Are we, is the mic working? I can't even really tell. And there's no mute button. All right. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Number Well. Okay. Oh, there we go. Now I can, I can actually hear that. All right, good. <clears throat> so where did, where did I leave off? No, I should have known that that would be what God's plan was all along, that he was going to change things up. Because my mom and dad went to Nigeria in 1951 and they served in ni- from 1951 until 1965 in Nigeria. And in that last year that they were there, <clears throat> mom and dad were... Sorry... mom and dad were invited to return to the United States for my dad to step into leadership with S.I.M. So I was born in Nigeria. And I grew up in a missionary home. I grew up as a missionary kid. I traveled back and forth to lots of different places as I was growing up. So I should have known, but there's that nasty word should. Um, I didn't, and I didn't realize it. So as we walked through that process, we really wrestled with the question of what is a call? What is the calling? And that's one of the myths that we're going to talk about this morning. There are several other myths, like the myth of the perfect missionary, or the myth of the soulmate agency, or other myths that we're going to come across in a few minutes. But putting myself into context, my wife Amy and I have served with SIM, as I said, for uh, 16 years, and then 15 years prior to that with another agency. We've been married 32 years, and I've been pretty much in ministry since 1982. So, we've got a few years thinking about these different things. Now, we're part of an organization, and I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you a little bit about the organization. I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes. We are SIM, and sometimes you will hear us referred to as SIM. Both are correct. When SIM was founded in 1893... Three men, a Canadian, an American, and a Brit. Sounds like a bar joke, but I promise you it's not. The Canadian, Canadian, an American, and a Brit um, went into a prayer meeting. No, they prayed together for about a year, and the Lord knit their hearts together and gave them a combined passion to go to a region in Africa called, at that time, the Sudan. has nothing to do with the country of Sudan. That came 40-some years later. But the region of Africa, Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, that kind of sub-Saharan region was called the Sudan. And so they went there because there were 70 million people up in the interior where there was no gospel witness. See, at that period of time in missions history, most mission stuff was going on along the coasts, the coastlines. And so those three guys, they were all 23 at the time, went to Nigeria. Within the first year, two of them died. And the third one, Roland Bingham, the guy over there, looks like he's the smallest one, but he was probably the tallest. They were sitting. <coughs> but Roland Bingham became our founder <coughs> and led the, um, led the mission into the formation as what became Sudan Interior Mission. That's why it's three letters of S-I-M, Sudan Interior Mission. Um, We now are a multinational, interdenominational organization that is the product of multiple mergers. And with all those mergers, we have um, grown in the locations where we serve. So we're no longer in West Africa. We're in 70 countries around the world. Um, our, Our mission statement is just simply stated that convinced that no one should live and die without hearing God's good news, we believe that God has called us and sent us to make disciples of the Lord Jesus where he is least known, communities where he is least known. And that's a pretty bodacious statement. Uh, We're 126 years old and a lot of older agencies tend to focus in on the things that they've already done and just kind of keep reinforcing those kinds of ministries. But we are constantly reimagining the possible. And we are constantly moving into new areas and uh, affecting um, change within the organization so that we don't rest on the history, but that we're constantly pioneering, even though the traditional and historical pioneering things or those eras are very different now. I just want to show you a quick Um, donut chart here. I don't expect you to be able to read the words that are there. I just want you to see the colors and the colors at least can communicate out there. This shows all a bunch of different categories that S.I.M. has ministry opportunities within. And as you can see that number 2430, that's a large number of ministry opportunities where we would be happy to send people right now um, to go and to fill those needs. If we were going to break it down into five groupings those would be the five, all of those around the circle tie into church planting. And healthcare touches in on most of the ones out there in the circle in some way. Or the things in the circle touch into health care. Either way, it's working together in that. So that's just a little bit of the context of the organization and a little bit of the context of who I am. So let's get going on the topic of exploding these myths. Oh, and there's our um, website. You can go take a look or you can go downstairs and talk to us at our tables. So let's get back to this topic of exploding the myths of missions. I promise you there will be no pyrotechnics. There will no, be nothing that will shock you, at least audibly. Hopefully some of the things I say will cause you to think differently um, than you did when you came in the room. But the first one I want to talk about is the myth of the Great Commission. I think we are mything it, if you will pardon the pun. I think it's Saturday morning, and we gotta do what we can, right? Right? Okay. It's a warm room, you know. We're trying to keep these things rolling here. Um, But I think we miss the point of the Great Commission. And here's why. So often we emphasize the word go. Right? When you hear people preach on the topic, especially from Matthew 28, when you hear people preach, the primary focus of that message is go. As if go is the command verb that's in there. Well, a simple little interesting thing about language is that there are these parts of speech in every sentence. And these parts of speech work together to make sense of the sentence. So, a verse will have a main verb, and then it will have helping verbs called participles. Guess what? The word go is a participle. What does that mean? It's not the main thing. That's what it means. So, if we look at it and kind of diagramming it, we have this word while going, it's the participle, and it comes very early in the sentence, so it is in the word order, therefore go, but it is a participle and it's pointing towards something. Now, what is it pointing toward? It's pointing toward the main verb. And it's in the imperative voice, which means it's a command. So what Jesus was saying, as all the people were gathered together on that mountainside, what Jesus was saying to the people was, while you are going, wherever it is you are going, make disciples. Hmm. What that does when we realize that is it takes off our shoulders the burden of saying, "Oh, I, God isn't calling me to go overseas. No. According to this verse, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, wherever you are, bloom where you are planted. Wherever you are, wherever it is you go, make connections with people so that you can show them your relationship with Jesus. And then through that relationship, lead them to a deeper relationship for themselves. That's what it means to make disciples. Jesus doesn't go into a 20-minute discussion on what it means to be a disciple with these people because in their culture, they knew what that meant. They knew that when a 12-year-old or 13-year-old boy... Got to that point in time, he would attach to somebody who would train him and work with him for the next several years until that young man could lead on his own and then become a trainer of other people. In our culture, we think of discipleship as going through a little booklet and filling in the words and memorizing a few Bible verses, and when you get to the end of it, hey, you're discipled. No, discipleship is life. It's life on life. It's working together. It's learning from each other. And the one, the one who does the discipling is discipled by the person that he disciples or she disciples. I mean, that's been my experience through life. It's a two-way street. We learn together as we're growing. But Jesus' command was not that everybody planned to go cross-culturally into another location, but that he has commissioned all of us, No matter where we are, no matter what job we have, no matter what role we have, no matter what relationships we have, He has commissioned us to make disciples. Now, there are two other participles that come along here, so we'll round those other two participles out. Baptizing and teaching. Notice that the baptizing comes before the teaching. Hmm. More often than not, it's the other way around. You have to go through six months of discipleship before you can be baptized. The point of baptism is to include people into the group and into the community. And then the point of the teaching is an ongoing process. But all three of these words, you can see, even though you may not be able to read Greek, you can see that the endings of the words are the same. That's the participle marker. That's how you can tell what a (coughs) participle is in Greek. This ending makes that the imperative voice of a verb. It means it's an action that you are to do and you are to keep on doing. So that's what Jesus is saying. So let's talk a little bit more about this Great Commission, where he said, therefore, go. Well, before he said, therefore, he had to have a reason for that therefore to be there. And that reason for that therefore to be there is the statement that he made immediately preceding. So Matthew does something really interesting in Matthew 28. <clears throat> he just plops Jesus down in the middle of a conversation. In many other places in the Gospel of Matthew, he outlines that things were said to fulfill the prophecy of so-and-so who said such-and-such. He does that all the way through. But in this case, he doesn't. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't point it to us. And I think the reason he doesn't do that is because all of his audience would have known this and didn't need that explanation. But you and I, this far removed from that time, we do. So when Jesus suddenly appeared in the midst of the eleven who were gathered together, Matthew tells us that eleven were there. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us five hundred people were there. So Jesus appeared in a large crowd. And he was saying this not just to the eleven, but to all the people who were gathered together. And when he popped down in the middle of them, and he didn't say, Peace be unto you. He didn't say, Don't be afraid. His first words, and I can imagine them thundering as he expressed them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, while you are going, wherever it is you go, make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And there's one more phrase we'll get to in a minute. But when he said that, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, What do you think he meant? What do you think he meant on that? When he said all authority. Well, the interesting thing about the Greek word that's translated into English as all, it means all. It means that there's nothing left out. So, if all authority in heaven and on earth, which heaven and earth, that comparison put together like that in Hebrew poetry always means the totality of everything between heaven and earth. It's everything and all included. So all of the all, all authority, all of the authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And Jesus is making this statement. And when he said that, he was identifying himself as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel had a vision of one who was like the Son of Man, who was appearing in the clouds. And this one that was like the Son of Man drew near to the Ancient of Days, which was the way that Daniel described God. And he drew near to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days conferred upon him dominion and power, all authority. So when Jesus stood in their midst, he told them, I, standing before you, I am he, I am the one, that Daniel pointed forward to. Now, at the time that this happened, John had not written the book of Revelation yet. John had not had his experience of being lifted up into the heavens and, and seeing all the things that were there. But in Revelation chapter 4, 5, and 6, um, John paints in 7 paints this picture of the throne room in heaven. And in Revelation 5, we find that John stood there and he wept because there was no one who was worthy to take the scroll. And somebody leaned over to John and said, don't cry. Someone leaned over to John and said, don't cry (laughs) because the lamb who was slain is worthy to take the scroll. So there's this scroll. So in, in Roman culture and in Hebrew culture and in Greek culture, a scroll was a symbol of authority, especially one that was sealed. So, here's this picture of John, seeing, John is seeing Jesus receiving from the Ancient of Days, from God, all dominion, power, and authority. And the angels erupted, and the people erupted in praise, saying, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. for with His blood, He purchased people from every tongue tribe, and nation. Do you see the mission's connection here? This is what Jesus was talking about. This is what Matthew is presenting in Reader's Digest format, just very brief. But he's showing to us that when Jesus stood in their midst, they had no question about the fact that this was something miraculous. And when Jesus said, I, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Therefore, go, wherever it is you are going, go, make disciples. He was giving to each of us through history, to the believers at that time, he was giving the authority and the commission to go and do this. And there is one more thing, one last thing, and I started to say it there when I said I. Um, There is a promise that comes embedded into the last phrase that Jesus says. He says, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And if you notice on the screen there, you have Exodus 3 in parentheses, because I want to draw our attention back to Exodus 3. What happened in Exodus 3? Moses is meandering in the wilderness, taking care of sheep and goats, and all of a sudden he sees a bush being not being consumed, but on fire. And as he turns aside to go and look at this thing, he sees that this bush is burning and he has a conversation with the bush. Of course he's going to have a conversation. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you ask the bush questions? Jesus, I believe, and Scripture bears this out, that in the Old Testament, there were manifestations of God that were visible to the human eye. Jesus is the person of the Trinity who is the one who is visible to us. And so Jesus, in... in, Filled that fire, if you will, did not consume the bush, but drew attention to the fact that this bush was not being consumed by the glory of God, but yet the glory of God was present. And so when Moses said to him, Well, whom shall I say it is that's sending me? King James says, I am who I am. That doesn't help us much. What the Hebrew says there is, I am he who is. I am He who is. That isness means that it's present, continuous, it's never-ending. And if you trace through all of the Old Testament, you will find that every time Yahweh, the name Yahweh appears, I am He who is. It will appear in connection with other names of God, like Elohim, Lord God. I am He who is. The eternal sustainer and creator and sustainer of all that exists. So when Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he's making a very clear statement connecting back to Yahweh appearing to Moses in the burning bush. So as he commissions us to make disciples, he's commissioning us in the same way that God commissioned Moses to go to. Pharaoh, and to lead his people. Do you see that? What doesn't come through in English, but it's clearer in Greek, but it would be even more clear if we could read it in Aramaic, the Greek construction of that statement where, where Jesus says, I am with you always. He literally says, I, the one with you, I am always. So they would have heard it and immediately connected back to the burning bush. So, the next time you hear somebody talking about the go of missions, well, going is incidental. It's important, but it's incidental. What matters is that we make disciples. So, I have to go from preaching to meddling here and ask the question, who are you discipling? Who's the person you or people that you are intentionally engaging? Because if you're not doing it here and you're not doing it now, why would you think you would be being led by the Lord to go overseas to do it? If you can do it in your own culture, in your own language, with the people that you already have an affinity with, then you can gain the experience and learn. But it's a growing thing. So, that's enough meddling. We'll we'll move on now. Um, We want to talk about the geographical myth. Again, this ties in with the go. Is missions um, anything to anywhere? Yeah, or no? Yeah, well... We'll see. Does God call us to a specific location? Again, we're going to see. We're going to unpack that in just a couple of minutes. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago called When Everything is Missions. I think one of the biggest problems that we are dealing with now in the 21st century is because we have access to so much on the internet, because we are able to read so many different things, we've actually stopped thinking about the importance of words. And so people use words kind of randomly and they use words um, whether or not they actually know what they mean or how they fit together. I mean, this is a an ongoing thing. I learned in Philosophy 101 back in the last millennium that if you're going to have a, comp- a conversation that actually makes sense, you have to be sure you're using the same words in the same way. Because I can know what I mean in my head when I use a word. And I can hope that you know what I mean when I'm using that word, but I can't know with certainty that you know the word that I'm using unless I define it or I put it into a context. And if I did that with everything, we'd be here for for weeks, for months, years. He's used to it. (laughs) He's used to talking with me and the definitions and all these things, my teammate. But in his book, When Everything is Missions, they challenge the question that when everything is missions, nothing is. And so in a local church, when we're using missions for everything that's outreach-oriented, let's just use the word outreach. And let's keep the word missions for a more clearly defined or more specific usage. That's not to create elitism, it's just to keep things clear. We, We tend to forget that in the way that there are different spiritual gifts, the gift of being an apostle which isn't typically in Paul's listings of these gifts, but the gift of being an apostle, one who is sent, is unique and it is different and not everyone receives the same thing. In the same way, everyone is not a pastor. We are a kingdom of priests. First Peter tells us that. We are to stand between people and God and bring God to people and people to God. Yes, that is the role that we have. But not all of us are the ones who are supposed to be up on Sunday morning or Saturday night or Wednesday evening or whenever it is people gather together to worship. Different people have different giftings and need to use them. And we need to be mindful of that when it comes down to the topic of mission. So the question of anything to anywhere... um, Not everything is missions. Even things that are cross-cultural, overseas, and doing things that are intentional for relating to people and bringing people into an opportunity to know Jesus may still not be technically missions. It may still just be making friends, making connections. So thinking about these things and wrestling through what some of them mean is an important thing. Um, I asked the question a minute ago, are we called to a place? Well, before we get to the answer of are we called to the place, we need to demystify the call. One of the things I've noticed since 2003, since we got here, we came back to the States, I've noticed that many, many more people are talking about calling. But they're talking about calling and then, they're, then talk to them again a month later or two months later and they're doing something totally different. And they told me that they were called to this six weeks ago as we were talking. And now they're doing something totally different, a a trajectory that's moving in a totally different direction. How does that work? What changed? Who changed? And so I started probing the question of calling. What does that mean? Going back to my own story, I thought God was calling Amy and me to Japan for the rest of our lives. But He had a different plan. My responsibility, I now understand, my responsibility is to respond to his leading. And that doesn't change calling, because as we look at calling, we're going to see that calling is not mysterious or mystical, like it seems when we read missionary biographies. How many of you have read missionary biography? The majority of you, okay. Always somewhere around chapter 2 is when the missionary um, will encounter something very subjective, very emotionally connecting. And I'm not putting this down at all. But what happens when we listen to stories like that or we read stories like that, what happens to us is because it didn't happen to me the same way it happened to that person, I'm off the hook. Or maybe God hasn't called me. Maybe God isn't leading me in this way. And so we tend to over-mystify something that isn't as mystical as it seems. Amy and I didn't end up in Japan because we both like sushi. And we didn't end up in Japan because I had a dream about a the, uh, cloud formation and it looked just like the nation of Japan. I mean, I've actually heard people tell me that that was part of how God called them to the country that they wanted to go. So I say that not to mock or to put down at all. I don't doubt that they had an experience. But you and I cannot expect to have the same experience because we can understand that God uniquely deals with us in the way that we need Him to deal with us. And that's because He knows us so intimately. And His leading is always consistent with His love and with His direction. And He will lead us into things that are harder than you can imagine. So when you see the t-shirt or the bumper sticker that says, God will not give me more than I can handle, please just toss that aside and recognize that that is not true. God will consistently call you and push you and nudge you and drop you into the middle of things that are harder than you can handle. Why? Because if you can handle them, you don't need God. Right, So, he is constantly working with us. And the, the call of God is not mysterious and mystical. Yes, it will be subjective. Yes, it will be unique to you. But you don't need to feel bad because you didn't receive a call like so-and-so did. Um, many of you, I think, are familiar from the book of Acts that um, at one point in time, Paul had a vision. of the, It's called the Macedonian vision. And he had a vision of a person from Macedonia. How he knew he was from Macedonia was probably the clothing he had. I don't think he had a sign from Macedonia. (laughs) But he had this dream, this vision, this idea. And so when he got up the next morning, he told the team, said, we're going to Macedonia. They got up and they went and they did that. And a lot of people think, well, that's how God must lead. That must be how God calls to missions. Paul was already 14 years into ministry when that happened. So it wasn't part of his initial process with the Lord. It was somewhere along the way as he was already in motion and obedience. The call is not limited to a select few. Every single believer in Jesus Christ is called to the same things. There's a list in Scripture. They're not listed out in one passage. But we are all called to the same things. And those same things are the list that I'm populating right now. He calls us to relationship with himself. He calls us to salvation. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to spiritual growth. He calls us to purity. I might need to repeat that because we forget that in our culture all the time. Very often. He calls us to purity. He calls us to evangelism and disciple making. That's all of us, y'all. Not just some of us. And don't worry about the fact of, well, am I an evangelist or am I a disciple or maker? Um, people do get worried about Think of it as a continuum. And people are always somewhere on that continuum. And at one extreme of the continuum is evangelism. And the other extreme of the continuum is disciple-making. And when you encounter the person that you're talking to, the one in front of you that the Lord has for you at that moment to share something with, you have the opportunity, the privilege, and the choice to either point that person toward Jesus or away from Jesus. And if that person already knows Jesus, then you're doing disciple-making. If that person doesn't yet know Jesus... You're doing evangelism. But what changed? Nothing. What's the difference in it? Nothing. You have the opportunity. You have the privilege. You have the commission. The authority of God has been given to Jesus and He conferred it upon us to be able to go out and to share with people. So, whether it's the person behind the counter at Starbucks or whether it's... Somebody that you sit next to at work or whatever the case is. Every conversation, every relationship, you have the opportunity to point toward Jesus or away from Him. So evangelism and discipleship, disciple-making, it's not scary, it's just life. You have no problem telling your friends about the movie you saw, the book you read, the game that you enjoyed watching. You have no problem talking politics, even though it riles everybody up. You have no problem talking about all those different things. Why do we have a hard time telling people about Jesus? It's not that we have to convince them that they should do that. Just make Jesus so attractive in your own life as you tell them the story of your own life, your own story. They can't refute your story. Because that's the rules that they play by. They play by those rules. So, they can't refute my story because they haven't lived my life. I can share my story. I'm not telling you that you have to live your life like mine. But I can share mine. And as I share, maybe, just maybe, I will make Jesus attractive enough that they're going to want to hear more. That's evangelism. That's disciple making. The last, second to last bullet there comes from the Old Testament. comes from Micah chapter 6. And we are all called to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's ongoing. That wasn't just an Old Testament statement for Old Testament times. It's a time, it's for all of us. The other thing that we are all called to is this last one. And I put it last... Not because it's last in a sequence of importance, but I put it last because you'll remember this one more than you will remember the other ones I've said earlier on. We are all. Paul said it, Peter said it. Jesus said it. James said it. Um, we are all called to suffer for Jesus' name. That's not a popular teaching. But it's a teaching that we all need. I gave a session on this topic yesterday. Some of you might have been there. But in this realization that we as a culture do not talk about suffering, it's not okay to not be okay. But we have to realize it's that when we are not okay, that's when Jesus becomes real to the people around us. Because when they see us relating to Jesus through all the not okay stuff, they begin to realize that this Jesus is real. And that even though life is not going the way we want it to go, even though it's hard at that moment, we have not walked away from Jesus. So that's an important thing to recognize. These are the things to which we all are called. Specific locations, that's leading. Leading is a different word. We will define the word leading here in a moment. But it's a different concept. And if we can separate those two concepts, it might take the load off of our shoulders. Each one of you in this room, myself included, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been called. Okay? So you don't need to wait for a call. The guidance, the leading, the direction, the step-by-step, we're going to talk about that. All of that will come. But... These are the things that are part of what it means. Hold on to that and recognize that. God will never reveal His will to those who want to know it, but He will always reveal His will to those who will do it. John 14.21, that's kind of a random um, summary of that statement. God will never reveal His will to those who want to know it. We would like to stand at the zero yard line. And we would like to look out all 100 yards down to the goalposts down there at the end. We would like to stand at this place and move forward to that place. And we would like to know everything that's going on in between. Promise me, I know. I've been interviewing people for the last 16 years. I don't know how many interviews I've done, but I'm somewhere in the 2000s of interviews for people inquiring about serving with S.I.M. Everyone wants to know The answers to minute questions that we can't know yet because we're not there yet and it doesn't matter. So we are in this process of trying to recognize God's leading in our lives and we need to lean into that. God in His graciousness does not reveal to us what we don't yet need to know. And He will reveal to us what we need to know when we need to know it. But guess what? He promises that His grace will be sufficient So yes, He's going to give us more than we can handle. All of life is more than we can handle because we are but carbon, right? We are just dust. And God is mindful of who we are. He's mindful of how we are made. He's mindful of what we need. He knows that some people do better in bright, sunny places and other people do okay in dark places. As a kid, I always wanted to go to Scotland and to the northern area. I'm Scottish by descent. My dad's from Scotland. So I always wanted to go up there. And then I found out that it's dark all winter long. And I did not know until we went to Japan that I'm affected by seasonal affective disorder. So the six weeks of rainy drizzle that we have every summer, it's about 58 to 62, 58 to 65 degrees, and the, it's just like walking in a cloud for six weeks. About four weeks or five weeks into that, I'm not doing well, but I know that it's going to end soon. God knows, God knew, God knows that I would never survive up in northern Alaska or someplace like that. So He didn't lead me to that location. But He will always reveal His will to those who will do it. As we are obedient, we, if things become clear. You remember the Bible verse, Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Have you ever thought about the two words that are used? A light and a lamp? Or a lamp and a light, rather? I always get them out of order. The lamp to our feet describes that little saucer that the, um, the oil saucer that had a little flame that would come off the end that would have three chains that come up and would be held like this. And people would walk with this, but you had to walk very slowly because if you walked too fast, the oil in there would slosh out and put the flame out. But this would provide enough light for about three steps. God's Word is a lamp to our feet. It provides what we need to know for the immediate. It provides what we need to know what we need to obey on a day-by-day basis. But it's also a light to my path Hebrew uh, shepherds would often. There were several shepherds that'd be together. The youngest shepherd would be sent back before it was time to bring all the goats back to the um, goats and sheep back to the sheepfold. And so, as these people are gathering and moving in that direction, the youngest shepherd would run back and light lanterns along the way, so that the shepherd, as he's coming, could see the light in the distance to know that this is the path that we're supposed to be on. So, God shows us in the macro, in the distance, the direction He wants us to orient our lives. But He doesn't show us everything in between. He unfolds it as we walk step by step. That's why there are so many references in the Old Testament about walking step by step. Look in the Psalms, talking about over and over again, step by step, you led me. I think the reason why God made us bipeds, two feet, is because one foot is trust and the other foot is obey. And it's as we trust, then we can lift the obey foot up and then we can put the obey foot down and while we're obeying, we can then see what we need to trust for the next step. And so walking through life, literally the Christian life is a walk of faith. It is a trust and it's an obey. The step, that are steps as we're talking about feet, our steps are ordained by God. They are established by God. That concept of him establishing our feet, our steps, that whole thing, is really speaking more to the intimacy of God's knowledge of our lives than it is to the picture of God fatalistically directing our lives. Because God doesn't fatalistically direct our lives. He gives us the freedom. If we were to take the time to unpack that passage in Psalm 37, we would see that God gives us the freedom, enough rope to hang ourselves. He gives us the choices that we can make, but He's the one who's always holding our hand so that when we do fall, not if we fall, but when we fall, we will not be hurled headlong because He's the one who holds our hand. I promise you, that's a really powerful passage. Just the two verses, Psalm 37, 23, and 24. Memorize those two verses. It won't take you very long. You can do it in a week. Memorize those two verses. Because I promise you, it is in nutshell form, all of God's teaching on how He works with us, loves us, and intimately knows us. It's a verse that sustained Amy and me, me especially, during our years that we were in Japan. We need to know that God's will is clarified by the body of believers that are around us. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals it, but it's clarified by the body of people around us and, or rather confirmed by the church around us. North Americans are notoriously individualistic. And it's something that we need to repent of and it's something that we need to recognize our need for each other. I can think that I'm a very loving person, but if I don't actually work with anybody, I can't know that I'm a loving person, and they can't know it either. And as I'm working with them, I can find out that I'm not as loving as I might think that I am. So it's the interaction of relating to people and being with people, having a community surrounding us that helps us to understand and determine how it is that God's leading us. One of the first questions that I ask people as I'm interviewing, when they're asking questions about S.I.M., and I'm interviewing them about the possibility of serving with us, is what do your friends think? What does your family think? What does your church think about this idea that you have about possibly going overseas to serve? I always ask that question somewhere in that first conversation because it helps me to understand, is this person completely individualistic and not even considering the web of relationships or has the person really entered into this process by listening to and learning from the people around them? It's a good question to ask and that's part of how the Lord leads. So in demystifying this question of the call there's a couple other quick points on there. We need to understand that God will reveal to us as we are being obedient that while we are in the process of doing His will, He will reveal His will. So as we are obeying Him in the things that we know to obey Him in, He will then reveal the next step. And that becomes clearer. The other thing is, um, sometimes the church, well, not sometimes, the church. The church that I grew up in, sometimes churches think this way, that's where I was going with that sentence. The church that I grew up in taught us that the will of God is a pinprick on a wall. It's extremely important that you find this pinprick on the wall. And woe be unto you if you do not find the pinprick on the wall. Because if you do not find it, you will be out of God's will. And if you are out of God's will, all hell will break loose. That's pretty much what I took away from high school in the church that I attended. I was so terrified of making a mistake. I was terrified on multiple levels, and as a perfectionist already, it was not happy. It took me many years to realize that God's will is not a pinprick on the wall, that we have to rub our hands all over the place with a blindfold on and try to find this pinprick. The will of God is the wall itself. And our responsibility is to orient our lives toward Him. Because as we orient our lives around Jesus, keeping Jesus central, not first, because when we put Jesus first, He's a checklist off, He's a checklist item we can check off our list and move on with our day. But when He is central to everything, then He impacts everything in our lives. And as we turn our heads, we see Him everywhere we look. But if He's a checklist item up here, He's out of sight. So as we orient our lives around Him, He will lead us. And he will bring us to the place we need to be. So that leads to the, the myth of the perfect person. Guess what? Perfect person doesn't exist. He so, what? He did. And he came back. True. That, yeah, there, there, is a, there is a category of one. And that would be Jesus in that. I may show you a picture of a squirrel, but the correct answer is Jesus. So, yes. But the, the reality is for you and me, for each one of us, um, no one is perfect right we all know that but yet we tend to think that we have to be perfect before we can start this process to see if God is actually leading towards overseas service you don't have to wait to that point because you know what as soon as we make the connection as soon as we see then your name on a list or an email address or something like that we know oh here's another imperfect person who's coming to us great because we learn and grow together and it's a beautiful thing So, what we're looking for is people who are teachable learners. People who are willing to learn from mistakes, willing to learn from experience, willing to learn from each other. We're also looking for people who are pioneering team players. And that's almost like an oxymoron. Because a pioneer is individualistic and pushing out there and going boldly where no man has gone before. But we are looking for people who will lean into those uncertainties but know the need that they have to have people around them to walk together. And so it's a team effort that's moving forward. And so we're looking for people who are willing to work with other people. In SIM, and I'm speaking very specifically about SIM at this point, we are an interdenominational agency which means we all come from different denominations and we choose to work together We don't all become the same theologically or philosophically. We continue to retain the histories we come from, but we choose to work together. We also are, all of our teams are multicultural. That means that you will not be put on a team of people who look just like you or are from you, from where you're from, or know the restaurants that you know or any of those things. You're going to be with people who are going to expand your knowledge base and life experience in a beautiful way. We're also looking for people who are wounded healers and limping leaders. Right? We're looking for people who have been through failure, for people who have been through pain, who have experienced those things and know what it means to be in those dark places. Because the people that we go to serve are people who are living in dark places. And so as we come in as white knights coming in with all the answers, we alienate ourselves and we alienate the people who are there to love and serve. But when we have been through suffering, when we have experienced the depths of pain then as we go through that process, we learn how to receive from Jesus. We learn how to receive from other people what we need to be able to love compassionately and to love gently. So what this also means is that if you come from a past that is extremely painful and there are a lot of scars, that doesn't derail you, that doesn't sideline you, that actually makes you more effective in ministry. So we work with people in the process to uncover some of those things. We, we don't intend to hurt people, but sometimes bruises need to be pushed. Sometimes scabs need to be lifted or cleansed or whatever. And so the process of doing that is not pleasant, but it's very important because whatever is left unresolved... It's kind of like a, a thread on, on a shirt or something like that, and you pull the thread and eventually your sleeve falls off. Um, anything that's left unresolved will unravel when you are living in another culture. And I can explain all the psychological reasons why that is, but the simple thing is, whenever we have an unresolved pain and we encounter something new that stimulates that pain, we go back to the original pain, not to the immediate situation. And so whatever has not yet been addressed needs to be addressed. And that's part of the process. We look for people who are flexible, for people who are resilient, and people who are fluid. All three of those words have slightly different nuances. But the idea is that if we are too concrete or too black and white in our thinking, we will um, not learn <laughs> so we need to be fluid we need to be adaptable and we need to know that yes we can make a plan because a plan is an important thing to do but God's the one who ordains the steps and we can make a wonderful plan but we have no idea what's coming around the next bend it's been about two and a half weeks I think since Bolivia had their elections and our teachers at a school down there are not able to teach their kids because the kids can't get to school because there's still stuff going on Um, There are all sorts of different things that are going on in the cities all around in Bolivia. And it's very, very tense. All of the missionaries had plans of how those weeks were going to be used and none of the weeks have gone according to plan. That's normal. Our day-to-day life of getting up, going to work, coming home, going, doing the next thing the next day, wash, repeat, rinse, or wash, rinse, repeat, whatever. Um, Our patterns of doing that work in this culture, in this context. That's not the way that it is in the rest of the world. The myth of the soulmate agency doesn't exist. There is no perfect agency, and if there is a perfect agency, please don't join it because you'll mess it up. (laughs) We all know that agencies are unique to the grouping of people that are there, and so what you're really looking for is the fit. What is the right fit? How do you find that fit? Well, some of the questions for that is to ask the right questions. What are the right questions? There are lots of them. And there are things that are unique to you, that matter to you, that you need to know, but you might not know that you need to know those things. The agency that Amy and I served with for the first 15 years of our career had many things that we didn't think to ask about beforehand. And we really wish that we had, and that was part of the decision-making process to make the transition. So ask lots of questions. Don't feel like you're bothering the person you're talking to because I promise you, the person you're talking to wants to hear the questions you have because as we hear those questions, we learn about you. We also learn maybe there's some things that we need to grow in that we don't know about, and these questions help us to learn in that. Um, The team you play with is more important than the field you play on. One of the myths that I constantly deal with are people who are feeling like, well, I don't really know if God's calling me to do this. He hasn't told me where He wants me to serve. That's good. It's good that He hasn't already told you that. Why? Because you are then malleable, you are then flexible, and you are then ready to be led and so that you and the organization that you are joining can work together to get you to the place that the Lord has for you. But when people come to us and they have everything planned out in their own minds, it's kind of like a young woman who came to me many years ago, and she said that she wanted me to officiate at her wedding. I got excited. I said, "Great, that's wonderful. When is this going to happen?" And she said, "Well, I don't know. I want it in the springtime, but um, please, I really want you to be the one that marries me." I said, "Okay, I'm happy to do that. Tell me about the guy." She says, "Well, I don't know him yet. (laughs) Think about that a minute." But that's how a lot of people approach missions. They want the venue, they want the season, they want the location, but they don't know if this is the right date, so not calendar date, but the right person to marry. So think about it that way in building a relationship, because you're joining a family, you're not joining um, a corporation. And if the agency that you're looking into is more corporate, then that's a warning sign. Just saying. Um, future ministry myth. I already asked you this question where I kind of went to preach into meddling. But um, who are you discipling now? The next question is how are you involved in church now? Hmm, there's a theme here. What's going on in your spiritual development right here, right now? Because when you get on an airplane to go serve someplace, you don't suddenly become equipped to go do what you're going to do. If you haven't been able to do it in your own culture and among your own people group, it's that much more difficult to learn how to do it in a totally different culture. How are your relationships? That's a really broad question, but it's a very, very important one. I mean relationships with friends, I mean relationships with family. Um, When you sense that the Lord is leading you to follow Him to go somewhere and serve, that touches every person in your web of relationships. So as you are counting the cost for you to go and serve, realize that all of the people who love you and know you have to count the cost of releasing you. So how are your relationships? Are you growing in relationship with people so that they are with you in this? They see where the Lord is working and see how this is happening? Um, how's your culture, cultural intelligence? One of the questions I often ask people is, do you have friends who are not of your ethnicity? Do you hang out with people who are all like you or do you hang out with people who are mixed? You know, different kinds of configurations of relationships. Is if you tend to be monocultural in your relationship structures here in the U.S., when you get to the mission field, your tendency will be to find the people who are most like you rather than... Embracing and loving the, the vitality and difference of another culture and then the basic question that usually most people think is the first question but how's your spiritual walk how reliant how much do you rely on technology for your daily devotions and daily walk with the Lord How much do you rely on those different things? Because if you are relying too much on those things, then you are going to have a hard time when you get into another culture. If you don't know how to feed yourself from the Word of God, if you don't know how to drink deeply from the living water that that God promises to provide, and Jesus said, Abide in me, you know, because as the branch that is uh, attached to the vine and deeply rooted, has the nourishment. If you can't do that here and now where we have all the things available to us that we have, what are you going to do when you're dropped off in the middle of nowhere in Chad where it's a million and two degrees hot and the internet doesn't exist at all? Satellites don't even pass over there. Maybe once a month or something. I don't know. I have a friend I can ask. I'll ask them later if they do. Um, So here's the conclusion thought, the final things to come to in these myths. Seek Jesus, not the opportunity. As I said before, keeping Jesus central, as you're focusing your heart, your life, your passion on Him, you can't miss His will. Psalm 37, that same passage that we were talking about a few minutes ago, also says that as we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. Now, that doesn't mean that as we delight in him, he gives us what we want. What it means that he is that he places within us the desires that he wants us to have. Okay? There's a big difference. I may want a Maserati, but the Lord doesn't know Lord knows that I don't need a Maserati. That's a desire I may have, but that's not the desire that He has placed in my heart. Coming to a chilly Kentucky Saturday morning to stand in a room with people that I don't even know to tell them about Jesus and to think about Jesus in other ways, that's a desire that He has placed in my heart and I cannot escape it. And that's His desire. And I love it. But as we are seeking Jesus, the opportunities will come. And that's what it means to follow Him. Don't wait for a call because you already done got it. So get up and use it. Get up and go. As you are going. At wherever it is you're going. When Jesus was talking to them, he did not expect them to stay seated on the side of that hill. And as I'm talking to you, I don't expect you to stay seated in these chairs for the rest of your lives. You're going to get up and you're going to go. So as you are going, you are living out the call that he has already placed on your lives. Research the fit. Ask the questions. Keep asking the questions. Keep digging deeper. Find out those things that really matter. Like one question that most people never, ever think about is asking the question of where are decisions made? My goodness, that's an important one. Because if you join an agency where the decisions are made back in here in the United States somewhere, and you're out on the edge of beyond, people are making decisions about your life who don't know what your life is like. But when decisions are made kind of not on the edge of beyond, but close to the edge of beyond, when decisions are made in that region, you can be more confident that the decisions are going to be more consistent with reality. And you won't be as strongly adverse to things that are handed to you. So that's a question that nobody seems to think about. There, I gave it to you for free. All of it comes down, if you haven't caught this from me already, all of it comes down to see Jesus. I'm not going to put up a picture of a squirrel. I promise you. But you know that story, right? You know the story in Sunday school when the little kids, um, the teacher held up a picture of a squirrel and the kids said, we know the, that looks a lot like a squirrel, but we know the answer is supposed to be Jesus. All right, That's typically the way people think. So anyway, seek Jesus. And we are out of time. So um, we have a couple of minutes. I think we'll squeak them in to answer any questions. Um, but I'm also willing to spend some time to answer one on ones as well. Do you have any questions as we part? I see that hand in the back. The buses will wait. Um, we talked about like, what family relationships and everything. That is a great question. The question is, how do you navigate um, the fact that there will be people in your family structure that may not want you to go? They're with you on this, but they still don't want it to happen. when we are commanded in the Old Testament to honor our fathers and our mothers, right? there's that, that passage is there. And in the New Testament, it's referenced again, so we see that that carries through forward. There's a difference in honoring our families and in honoring our parents um, from when we're children and we're in direct submission to them and when we're adults and we have to respond directly to what God is doing and leading in our lives. So there comes a point in time where we have to say this is between God and me, between God and my immediate family. This is the decision we have to make. We want you to support us in this. And we want to honor you in this. We want uh, this to be positive. We know you have questions. We know you're concerned. But this is a decision that when it comes down to it's between you and God, you, your family, and God. So, that may be a little bit on the simplistic side, um, but fleshing that out on how that works. Just last weekend, Amy and I went to a send-off party for a young couple who are, and their three kids who are going to Thailand. Their three kids are four and younger. So, wham, bam, there they are. These kids all together quickly and they were leaving uh, for Thailand. Amy and I, we arrived right on time because we lived in Japan and that's what you do in Japan. And Amy and I are both of the mindset that on time is late. So we arrived right on time. And so we had 40 minutes before everybody else started coming. And so we had this wonderful opportunity to meet with both of the parents of the couple that were there. And so, the sharing that happened and the conversation that happened in that and, uh, was really precious, but we could see how they were having to count the cost for on um, that experience. So, that's a good question. Yes, sir? I heard uh, what you are saying, that the mission is, it doesn't have to be over, you know, two the away, as you said. And also, I heard that mission starts in the family. hmm You don't move. Because if it's your spouse, and if Scripture teaches us that we're one, then we are divided. In, in our organization, we don't move forward unless um, both, both members, both husband and wife. Because we see both as equal. We don't see them, oh, the man is the missionary and the wife is the um, sidekick, arm candy or whatever. No, we see both as being um, the people that God are leading. And so if they're not both in agreement in that leading, then we recommend that they take their time and keep exploring this and keep praying. All right, thank you. I know it's late, so we need to move on. Thank you.